What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And real quick, before I introduce my wonderful guest, Miss Lee Stein, actually, Mrs. Lee Stein, she recently got married, so congrats to her. But before I introduce her and this conversation, this awesome conversation we had, uh, just real quick, for those of you who missed the last episode or a couple uh, last episodes, uh, the podcast schedule is changing, not a thousand percent sure what it will be changing to. Uh, I start an awesome new job next week, but I'm not abandoning the podcast. I love talking with authors and I'm never going to stop reading, so it's not going anywhere, but Make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul, just so you don't miss any updates. Like when I figure out this new schedule, it might just stay the same where I'm uploading once or twice a week uh, because I, I I can batch record and, uh, you know, schedule these things out over the weekends and all that stuff. But make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss anything. And I just love chatting with you beautiful people and i guess the other thing i'll announce too uh for those of you who don't know there are a lot of people a lot of wonderful people who are listening to this episode and many other episodes a day early and if you're wondering how they do that all you got to do is become a paid subscriber over on Substack. it's only five dollars a month or 50 bucks for the year and you get all the regular episodes uh a day early all right so that comes back and helps support the podcast a little bit and you get early episodes and I'm working on some other perks and everything like that. Like uh, I've written some books. I'm uh, thinking about putting those up on there for free for people who support the podcast through Substack. And I'm working on another upcoming book too. So I'll see if I can hook you guys up with that too. All right. But anyways, anyways, let me chat with you about Lee Stein. So I was actually uh, unfamiliar with her work. I saw her floating around on Twitter, but I actually uh, listened to her conversation with Megan Daum. Uh, many of you know Megan because she's been on the podcast twice. Uh, she's awesome. She's one of my favorite writers. Her style and everything is amazing. But she had me on her podcast. I was like, this Lee Stein woman, she knows what she's talking about. So I reached out to Lee and yeah, I ended up picking up one of her books, which is fiction. So uh, Lee is actually the uh, second only the second fiction writer I've ever had on the podcast. She wrote this amazing book called Self-Care, but Lee is a is a writer. Uh, she has written uh, a bunch of books. She has written a nonfiction book, which is a personal memoir, which we kind of discussed in this episode. It's about a, an abusive, toxic relationship that she was in, but she also wrote a book of poetry. She's working on uh, another novel right now, but she writes like crazy. But anyways, we talk about her book, Self-Care. I, I really enjoyed it. It's kind of a, a, a social commentary on like the toxic girl boss phenomenon and like the self-care movement and, you know, body positivity, but there's a touch of me too. And there. there's so many different social aspects that she dives into. So I'm glad that we get to chat, uh, chat about it, but that book, uh, absolutely killed it. Uh, a lot of people loved it. It got great reviews. So definitely check that out, especially if you're into fiction, like realistic fiction, it was a fantastic book, but also Lee is like, uh, she's a writing coach. She's an entrepreneur. Um, I signed up to her newsletter. Like she has such great insight and wisdom, uh, on the publishing industry, on writing and everything. So I get to chat with her, uh, just about writing in general. And we talk a lot about, um, you know, marketing, like a lot of you. So a lot of you who listen to this, uh, you know, uh, are writers. A lot of you are not writers, but you love to read. And Lee and I kind of go behind the scenes and chat about a lot of this stuff. Uh, but yeah, with my background uh, in marketing and Lee being a huge advocate for people like 
needing to promote their books, uh, I go on a little bit of a rant that none of you have really heard me go on <laughs> when it comes to certain authors and how they promote and everything like that. So you get you get a little peek behind the curtain of what marketing and promotion uh, looks like and should look like for authors and their books and all that type of stuff. But it was a blast talking with Lee. This is one of the longer episodes. I could talk with her all day long and I might need to get her back on this podcast at some point. Um, but yeah, make sure that you head down to the description. I'm going to link uh, Lee's uh, Twitter. Make sure you're following her. She's she's hilarious. And she also tweets out Insight Wisdom. And uh, yeah, I'll also link uh, a few of her books down below. Okay, so make sure you follow her. Grab a copy of one, two, three of her books. She is just an amazing, amazing woman. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Lee Stein. All right. Hello, Lise. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You are my second fiction writer on the podcast. Are you excited? I'm very excited. And I want to know more about why you read uh, so little fiction. I actually, I have that on my list. We talked about it on Twitter, so it is <laughs> it is coming. But but uh, real quick, for those who are unfamiliar with you, because uh, yeah, you've I think you've written, you wrote one nonfiction book as well, maybe, but yeah, lay it out for me. How many books do you got? What are you writing and all that? Sure. So I'm the author of five books and I'm a cultural critic and I write a lot about what the internet is doing to us. Mm. And the book that really put me on the map is called Self-Care and it's a satire of the wellness industry that came out in summer 2020 at the perfect moment when all the girl bosses were tumbling down. And so I got really lucky with the timing of that book. And then my most recent book is actually a book of poems written during the first phase of the pandemic. And that book is called What to Miss When, and it came out last summer. Yeah, awesome. And and yeah, uh, you you recommended it to me. You're like, hey, you might want to read self-care. Everybody liked that. So I'm like, okay, I'll check it out. And yeah, like I am huge into just not just cultural commentary, but I come, like I mentioned right before we started, I come from the YouTube world. I was canceled in 2019. And the whole reason I started reading and getting into books is I wanted to understand what the hell was going on. Cause I knew nothing about the internet landscape, even though my YouTube channel blew up. I'm like, oh, this is fun. But there was something about hundreds of thousands of strangers coming after me that made me want to understand human behavior. But yeah, that, like you, the book kind of opens up on that. So can you kind of lay out like what 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 were you seeing in the like internet landscape that kind of inspired this book? Yeah, so my origin story is in 2014 I was part of this Facebook group called Binders Full of Women Writers that another writer started and it was a private invite only group. She thought she thought 20 people would join this group. Uh by the time I joined there were 30,000. Oh. And I had the idea to start a conference for this group, and that conference became a nonprofit organization. I became the executive director. So from 2014 to 2017, my life basically revolved around this feminist internet community and in-person conference in New York City and L.A. that I organized. And it was like some of the most rewarding work of my life, and it was also some of the most toxic, burnt-out work of my life. Yeah. By the end, I was 
drinking. I'd gained 15 pounds. I had repetitive stress injuries in both my wrists from overworking. Mm. I was spending seven days a week on Facebook moderating fights between different women who would tattletale to me saying, Lee, you've got to intervene. You've got to tell this person to stop saying this to that person. Mm. And I was like, I can't believe this is my life that I'm like supposed to be the police of the internet. How did we get here? Mm -hmm. And I resigned. I left Facebook forever. And I started writing this novel. So the seed of the novel is really this question of how can women be so awful to one another under the guise of doing feminism? You know what's crazy? Like, I don't know if you need to write a second edition, but this book makes so much more sense just hearing that little story. Just that quick little, like, you know, like your own background. But that that's interesting. Like, um, so, so like one of the topics that you discuss and kind of how you like market this book is like the girl, the girl boss phenomenon and stuff. Right. And, you know, uh, growing up and I don't want to be one of those guys, which it always comes out that way, but I have a lot of friends who are women. So I'm all about that feminism <laughs> and stuff. Right. Uh, but no, like, uh, yeah. Some uh, of my best friends are women. <laughs> exactly. And my mom's a woman, <laughs> but like, what do I, it feels, it feels like there's like pros and cons, right? Because there's like, you know, all, all the awesome things that women could do and, you know, like you bring so much awesome content, uh, so many amazing writers and stuff. Like, seems like there's like benefits and drawbacks, right? So like on a spectrum or like what, what, what's the good and the bad? Cause there's gotta do be some Do you mean good, the benefits right? and drawbacks of like contemporary feminism? And yeah. And the girl boss thing, like specifically oh, the like girl on, boss entrepreneurship uh, and stuff, because there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, like, I'll give you an example, right? So my girlfriend and I, we, we just binged the new first part of uh, Ozark, right? And she looked at me and she's like, why do they turn, like, women characters who, like, become, like, strong and, like, you know, whatever? Like, why, why do they turn them awful in these shows? You know what I mean? And me as a guy, I'm sitting there wondering, I'm like, because, like, you guys, like, you're trying to, like, uplift women and saying, hey, be independent, do your own thing. You don't need no man. But then there's also this other side of it. Right. So I'm curious, just the whole the whole picture. Yeah, it's like we're in a really interesting moment culturally, because like for so many centuries, the our, our models of success, ambition, money and power have been men. So those are like the images that we had of that. Mm. And so some women emulate men to get ahead. Other women say, why should we emulate men? We should do this our own way. But it's like we're still figuring it out. I feel like there isn't. We also put women on pedestals. And this is what happened in the Girl Boss Movement is like we put women like Audrey Gelman, the founder of The Wing, um, on these pedestals. And we're like, look at this woman. She has it all. She can be a feminist. She can be a capitalist. She can be pregnant on the cover of a magazine. Um, and we we made her such an emblem that when she made a human mistake, we gleefully tore her down. We the ones that put her on a pedestal. So while I was running this nonprofit and doing these conferences, I was like um I was like a nonprofit girl boss. I was like a very broke girl boss, you know, like I got my clothes at TJ Maxx and put them on a credit card. Yeah. But I was going to these like women's empowerment conferences. This was like this was like the heyday of the girl boss. And I was getting all this advice that I should brand myself and I should be speaking mm. at these women's conferences. And I was like, can you guys, like, all I, my dream, I wanted to make $40,000 a year. That was my dream, and I couldn't reach it. I had such a low bar. I just wanted to do my conferences. I didn't want to go around the country speaking like I was an expert on feminism, but that's what was expected of me as this mm. girl boss. So for my novel, I set it in this more um, 
wellness industry and with higher stakes in terms of finance, the finances, because I just thought that would make for a better novel. So there's much more money at stake in the novel than there was um, mm -hmm. in reality. But th the other thing about the what was I going to say about the about the girl boss? Yeah, she's the she really she, the the girl boss is like an archetype of ambition. She's a go getter. She really mm -hmm. goes for it. And a lot of women, find, including me, find that really inspiring. I'm a very driven, ambitious person, and I think actually it's a downside, a negative, that the backlash to the girl boss has been to retreat from the public sphere or to pull back from careers or to like. Just make like jokes on Twitter, you know, I'm so tired. Like, why do we all have to work? Like, I see that and I'm like, well, that's not the answer. Like, I don't think we should all just stay home. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think women should stay at home. Like, we can't have this boomerang reaction to the girl boss where we all pull back from society. We have to take yeah. what's good about it um, and think critically about the negatives. You know, well, well let me let me ask you this, too, because it just kind of transitions to what we're going to talk about later with like. Uh, you know, the advice you give to other writers and everything like that. Like, I learned about you from, uh, you know, Megan Dome's uh, wonderful podcast. She's been on the, the this podcast twice. Um, and and something that you talk with her about is, you know, writers need to promote their work. They need to be writing. They need to be out there. But anyways, with like the girl boss thing and like me, like I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. I just have that mindset. So even though I've been sober since 2012, I I get stuck on stuff and I just go, 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 right? So there's this kind of overall conversation around hustle culture and how it's toxic and everything like that. But then with all the lessons you've learned, like I see you just doing stuff, right? <laughs> so so where does that come in with like, you know, the, the kind of ambitious uh, narrative that comes with being a girl boss and balancing that hustle with not being, you know, that thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. One thing that really um, bothered me in my girl boss days is the rise of personal branding because I thought I don't want to be known for who I am. I want to be known for what I do. Mm. So it's the doing. Um, I don't want to just put writer in my Twitter bio. Like I want to actually write things. Like I want you to know me because you've read my writing, not because yeah. I identify as a writer and like show you pictures on Instagram of me and my coffee shop and coffee mug and my pen and paper. Like, I feel like there's this thing about what are the optics that's very girl boss. Like, does mm -hmm. it look feminist on the outside, but it's dark on the inside? Mm. So social media encourages us to lean into the optics and to perform the image and to um, create our personal brands in a way that's like very quickly legible. Like it has to be a shorthand. But I just see so many people just wasting so much time on the branding and they there's nothing inside it. Like it's a brand of what? What's, mm -hmm. you know, put your mark on the wor world by what you do. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Like a lot of the you know, nonfiction authors I have on here, like I talk a lot about like political polarization and just like misinformation and pseudoscience and all the things where people divide up into their tribes and everything. And I've, I've been like really noticing this so much lately and just trying to learn more and understand it, but the, the whole branding aspect, right? Because I come from like a marketing background as well, where, you know, the last company I, I worked with, we were, we did personal branding. We had clients and it was like, we're developing your brand. And I've noticed just how everybody's doing it, right? Like political figures, uh, you know, uh, journalists and just these these people just I, I don't know people are just becoming brands just for like 
talking shit. You know what I mean? And it's it's kind of bonkers because when I look back, uh, when I step back and I look at it, I think the same thing like, well, I'm like, what do you do? Right. Like I'm looking at them. I'm like, what do you actually do? What do you produce? Uh, yeah. And some of them write books and I read their book. I'm like, this isn't much different than me just scrolling through your Twitter feed. There's all your hot takes and, you know, and all this, this other stuff. And I, I'm curious, like uh, when it comes to the book, it seems like the two characters, the two main characters you have, let me try to remember Darren and no, Ev, Devin and Marin. Did I get Very it right? Good. Very okay. Good. Okay. Yep. I'm not used to uh, the fiction. It's hard to keep up with names, <laughs> but <laughs> it seems like they're, they're opposite. Did you kind of craft, like write them? I don't even know the words to describe fiction. Did you create them in that way to be kind of opposites with how they do the branding and know about it and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. So I'll describe the plot a little bit. So there's two founders of this wellness startup. The startup is called Ritual, R-I-C-H-U-A-L. And it's kind of a a play on Goop. It's kind of like if Goop and Instagram have a baby, that's their company. <laughs> and Marin and Devin are on opposite ends of the self-care spectrum. Marin um, has an alcohol problem. She uh, has gained a lot of weight since working at this startup. She works all the time. She's a workaholic. She claims to be body positive, but really she kind of has like a fuck it attitude to everything mm. and eats and does whatever she wants. In contrast to her co-founder, Devin, who's more of the Gwyneth Paltrow type, who um, is a quote-unquote intuitive eating coach, but that's a mask for her eating disorder. She's obsessed with her diet. She's obsessed with over-exercising. I have a lot of scenes where I put her in her exercise class mm -hmm. called Feel, P-H-E-E-L. Um, and then in the middle is their star employee, Khadija, and the book alternates between Marin's perspective, Devin's perspective, and Khadija's perspective. Um, Khadija's their token black employee, and she's a vegan, um, and she's more in the middle. She actually does practice self-care, so she's kind of the yeah. the middle of the of the spectrum. Um, but I did set up these characters in deliberate contrast to one another and also to kind of show the confusing messages that women are getting online. I feel like there have been a lot of big changes in women's media. You know, when I was growing up, women's magazines, the cover stories were how to lose 10 pounds and get a bikini body. And the messaging today is like, everybody is a bikini body. Like you don't have to lose weight to wear a bikini. It's more body mm -hmm. positive. And yet there are still so many influencers. There are still so many accounts that promote diets. It's just branded differently. Mm -hmm. And so my skepticism of branding um, is a big part of this book. And another thing that I think is really interesting is I feel like I feel like we treat corporations like people now and we treat people like corporations. So we'll mm. say like, Nike, where's your statement? Like, what do you believe, Nike? Like, what do you stand for? And it's like, okay, Nike is a company trying to make money. And then we say to a person, yes. we're like, where's your apology? Like, where's your, you know, PR statement? And it's like, well, that's that's a human being. You know, they don't have to give you a statement because they're not a company. <laughs> yeah. They're a human. So we have this, like, we have really weird expectations now of companies and of mm -hmm. personal brands, a.k.a human beings yeah yeah so a few things so first off what's hilarious is like i didn't even realize the play on words that you had throughout the book because i listened to the audio version so like <laughs> oh you don't know how any of this is spelled no, that's no, so funny that's so you're like funny. saying this i'm like wait did i'm like oh wait i, I listened to the audio yeah i'm an audio listener that's how i get through so many books just listening all the time um but yeah so i actually just started this book last night called uh the sunny nihilist i can't remember the author but anyways 
her, basically she starts off with what you're talking about. Like, like, why does everything have to be a thing, right? Why does it have to be a meaning or a brand? And, you know, she, she came from the marketing world as well. And she talks about it in there, but yeah, this is definitely, um, you know, some, something I've noticed as well. Uh, when, when everything happened to me on YouTube, it was, uh, what was it like 2019 2020 when a lot of people on youtube were getting canceled and they expect people expected an apology and all these statements and kind of like you mentioned earlier uh uh with with someone like falling from grace like just making a mistake like a very human mistake and it's it's weird like so i'm curious like your thoughts on these kind of uh parasocial relationships that we see today too like these are just people you know especially with YouTube, like YouTube kind of rose from this, like, I'm just sitting in my room telling you a story, right? And it, you, you feel like, oh, okay, especially with the epidemic of loneliness and all this. But like, I, I try to like explain to people, like, this person doesn't know you nor care about you. Like, that sounds rough, but they don't. They, they care about what you are providing them and that's about it, right? Like, it's been that way with all celebrities for all of life. I don't know why that feels like it's, it's changed, you know? Mm, I think it's changed because it's like the access has gotten fans closer. Mm. Don't you think the proximity has changed? Yeah. Right. Like if just, I was watching yeah. a Marilyn Monroe movie, like how, what are the odds that I could send a message to Marilyn Monroe? Like zero. Like I had a mm. zero chance of getting her a message. But today it's like, well, I could slide into their DMs. Like, mm. I don't know if they'll respond, but I could send them a DM or I could try to reach them. I could reply to their tweet or their post. Maybe they'll read my comment. I'm fascinated by parasocial relationships. I think that's super interesting. Um, and another theme that fascinates me is like Devin, the character in my book, who's like the blonde, you know, the blonde beauty mm -hmm. who has so many followers. She's the loneliest character in the book. So, so all these women look up to her online and they, and she posts content for them and they comment on it, but she has very few actual intimate relationships. So this has been true in my life. I feel like some of the most successful people I've ever met are the loneliest. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, do you, do you think that's, I don't know what, do you, do you have any theories about why that is? Do you think it's because to be successful, uh, you have to kind of put on this, like, I don't know, you have to put on this, like, well-branded, like persona. I, I, here's a better way to, uh, kind of, uh, frame this question. One of my favorite parts of the book, and I don't even know how much, like you, uh, how much attention you've put into this part but one that resonated with me was when you're talking about ritual and you know they, they created this platform for women to like share their experiences and discuss their mental health and their traumas and everything but i think it was uh you know uh maybe Mary? i think it was yeah yeah she was recognizing where when people shared like the real stuff that happened to them like sexual abuse or you know whatever that didn't really get engagement right but the kind of this like surface level mental health stuff then you get it right so so going back to that do you think like what succeeds is like just enough to let you know i'm human but not too much because that's kind of a bummer and we don't want to break down the mood that's kind of what i see but i'm curious what, what you've seen yeah i'm i'm really interested in confessional content online and like my area of expertise is how women do this i'm sure men do this too in their own way and maybe it's happening on reddit and i don't go to reddit <laughs> But on Instagram, certainly there's like a lot of there's a lot of confession. And I am fascinated with like um, it's a way it's a way for the the wealthiest, most beautiful, thinnest, most popular white women influencers 
to appear vulnerable and relatable, it's by confessing something, but it's very calculated what they confess. There's certain things they confess and certain things they don't confess. They never confess how they've wronged anyone else. It's always how they've been wronged. Mm. Um, and it's often a confession of, I know my life looks perfect, but it's actually not perfect. I was right. actually, this picture where I look so fucking hot, I was having a really hard time. And then mm -hmm. the audience goes, I know just what you mean, girl, you know? And it's like, it it builds that intimacy in these parasocial relationships because the no. followers feel like she understands, she gets me. Or like Glennon Doyle, who's super successful, um, struggles with an eating disorder, very tiny and beautiful. And she posts these selfies where she's not wearing any makeup. And she's like, this is me being real. Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, but Glennon Doyle, like <laughs> you have so much. Like you, have, yeah. you just like, you know, she makes so much money. She bought her parents a house. Like she's very privileged, but she performs that she's just like the rest of us. She's struggling just like we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I gotta, I gotta monitor my, my language. Cause I can probably get into trouble, but what you're talking about drives me absolutely nuts. Like I'll, I'll tell you, uh, like, obviously since we're on video, you can tell I'm a little bit on the thicker side. Right. And I cannot stand when some people like, oh, look, look at me, body positivity. I'm like, you're fucking like ripped or right. Or you have like a normal body. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? And, and it's like this, this act of bravery, right? And you're in a baby. I'm like, what? And what's weird to me, here's what's weird to me, Lee. How come more people don't get offended and furious by this, right? Like, because most people aren't looking like that. Like someone like, like the Jenners, right? Or the Kardashians, they could just hop on and be like, oh, you know, body positive. And it's like, you what? <laughs> like 90% of you is fake, right? You've had it fine your entire life. Yeah. So I, I, I always struggle to understand. I'm like, am I in the minority of people who are like, will you shut your face? <laughs> like, I don't want to hear about your struggles, you know? So I, I, I don't get why people yeah. like appreciate it. Well, there's like a sense of the, it's like the emperor's the emperor's new clothes. Ooh. It's that feeling where you're like, you're like, am I crazy? Am I the only one that can see the emperor is naked? Like everyone around is participating in the delusion. And you're like, wait a second. Like this woman is saying like she's body positive and she got over her eating disorder, but she looks exactly the same in this photo as she did in this in her before photo. You know, you're like, are you are we all telling the truth here or are we telling like a story that we think our audience wants to hear? Mm hmm. It's just yeah. like so many of the, so many of like, it, it, it's like, it's not diet coaches anymore. It's like nutritionists. It's like a different name, but even like a lot of these women that show up in my feed, it's like, oh, they're, they're naturally thin women saying that they've fixed their relationship with food. They just happen to look like the women that have a problem with food. There's just this like double speak. It makes it very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's one of those things. Like I, I realized, and you know what I hate too, how, how the whole red pill, blue thing, like, uh, build, uh, red pill, blue pill thing turned like a political thing. Because originally when it was like in the matrix, it was like, do you want to see the reality? And what I've realized since, you know, all my reading, I'm like, why don't people want to educate themselves? Why don't people like, I read a lot of books on denial, self-deception. Like I want to understand why do we lie to ourselves so much? And it's just one of those things. Like it's, it's, better living in the fantasy. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think especially with the parasocial relationships, because, you know, I try to understand, like, why, why do we admire celebrities? Why do we care? Why do I care what celebrities break up, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with me. And by like, some, like, evolutionary psychologists, they believe, like, it's, it's because we aspire to be like them, so we act like them and we look like them or whatever. And maybe it's like, 
oh, well, if this person looks like that and they struggle, then maybe I can look like that, then, you know, still have some of my defects and, and all this, which is absolutely bonkers. But um, one thing I did want to ask you about the book, right? Because uh, there's like some, uh, not to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it yet, but there's like some uh, Me Too aspect of it too. And with, with Devin and this whole thing, like, I don't even know, like, can I spoil a book that's a couple of years old? But like, I'm just curious because it's like, you're, I'm, I'm kind of like, is she a victim or no? You know what okay. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, so I can set it up for your audience. Okay. So um, Devin is having a sexual relationship with their main investor, whose name is Evan. And her fantasy is to be totally powerless. So when they have sex, she's like a sleeping beauty and she's like a she's like pretending to be asleep and she's totally passive um and then it's revealed in the book that some allegations of sexual assault have come out against this character evan so this is a question that i wanted readers to wrestle with is devon evan's victim mission accomplished <laughs> and my fantasy was that book clubs across america would read my book and they would argue with each other about this question um yeah. Because I do think I, I I was trying to write about a kind of gray area um, encounter, like the kind we saw with um, the famous comedian whose name I'm forgetting. Not Lucy Kate. Kate. No, 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 no. The other one who went to that girl's the babe.net story. I am totally past. Oh, my I, God. I thought I was up to date with all of no, them. No, no, no. You know him. Um, is it Chris D'Elia? Master of None. Who made Master of None, the TV oh, show? Oh, Aziz Ansari. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Oh, my God. Aziz Ansari, right? Where he went over to this girl's apartment. It seemed like she was giving him signs that she was into it. And then later she wrote this whole thing about how violent yeah. she was. And it's it spurred this huge debate among women. And in my experience, a lot of these conversations between women are divided on generational lines. And Megan mm. Dom talks a lot about it's, this. I think I was it's just so interesting that. that Gen Xers are like, be tough. They fetishize toughness. If mm -hmm. you don't want something, you tell the guy, no, I don't want that. I'm not into that. And you leave. You catch a cab. Mm -hmm. So the Gen Xers' reaction to the Aziz Ansari story were, why didn't this girl take a cab home and leave? Why did she stay? Mm -hmm. The millennials' reaction to this story is, oh, my God, how many encounters have I been in with a guy where I wasn't really into it, but I kind of went along with it to, like, please him? And he should have known he should have been able to tell that I wasn't really into it and he should have stopped. Yeah. So I just think that's so interesting. Um, and I wanted to write about one of these gray area situations. And so I deliberately wrote it in a way to kind of make the reader uncomfortable and queasy and have to really think about, you know, it's, it's complex. It's, it's possible that she was his victim. It's possible she was not his victim, but other women were his victim, right? And, she, and mm -hmm. that was consensual between her and him. So there's different... There's different variations, and I, I deliberately tried to write it in a complex, nuanced way. Yeah, no, and you killed it with that. And <laughs> yeah, this is exactly something uh, that Megan and I actually talked about the first time she was on, uh, was this whole conversation around like power dynamics and things like that. But with me, com I, I come from the, the mental health world, and that's like what my YouTube channel was. And, you know, I've worked in addiction treatment. A lot of people deal with, you know, trauma, abuse and stuff, and there's like, very clear black and white situations where it's like, yes, that was assault. That was childhood abuse. You know, uh, uh, majority is female, like 90%, right. And then like some, even men too, but, but yeah, then, uh, when the, the whole rise of the me too, and like, uh, the Aziz, Aziz and Sari's, uh, story there, there was this like weird, like 
gray area. And, you know, for me, because uh, I have a lot of these conversations around mental health, right? Because what I've noticed when I first started my channel, for example, I, I was like, I, I need to make this channel because we don't talk enough about mental health. One of the reasons I started uh, self-medicating with alcohol and drugs was because nobody ever taught me about this stuff, right? But then as I got into this world, I'm like, wait a second. Are we talking too much about mental health? Like everybody's been traumatized by something. Oh my God, but, this is how I feel. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. but it, it feels like with that growing conversation, more and more people started looking backwards and trying to find something, you know, like uh, I'm sure you've heard of these stories too. Like, wait, uh, like imagine the Aziz and Sorry story that that woman came out 10 years later. And she's like, looking back on that, maybe that was. And that's where I start to get really like, what what's going on right because right you're talking about like recataloging incidents from the past yeah. that have been filed away under one category and you go back to it and you go oh my god this is even worse mm -hmm. yeah than i thought so, at the time so what are, what are your thoughts like you have thoughts on this kind of like rise of like the mental health conversation like uh you know i i talk with a psychiatrist on here who debate about the overdiagnosis issue too so do you so think it's like becoming a thing where people like kind of uh, they, part of their brand is their mental health issues and stuff like that. This is so interesting. So I have a relevant mental illness backstory, which is that um, I became suicidally depressed as a 13 year old girl. Mm. I had an internet friend I made on an AOL message board. He lived in Las Vegas, Nevada. We used to talk on the I phone. I live in Las Vegas. That's not me though. There you go. It wasn't <laughs> you. It was somebody else. Uh, he was another teenage boy. We, we used to talk on the phone long distance. And um, we exchanged photos in the mail so we would know what the other looked like. And because we exchanged photos in the mail, he knew my address. Mm. And I told him that I was su having suicidal thoughts and I had a plan. He called the police in my town who called my parents who got me into treatment. So at the time that I was suicidally depressed, this was in the late 90s and the internet was my life. The internet yeah. is where all my friends were. I did not have friends at school. The internet saved my life and, and no one I knew was talking about mental health. Like this wasn't a topic, mm -hmm. like it wasn't, teens mental health was not part of the zeitgeist. So I felt really isolated and alone, but I felt seen on the internet. And now, how many years later, 20, 25 years later, it's completely different. And so I see the positives of this. I see the way that um, like young people can talk about mental health openly, like they know about it, right? And they're hearing mm -hmm. celebrities talk about it. It's like in the air. So I see that as like a positive, but I see the negative as pathologizing everything, Yeah. right? Turning everything into who's the victim and who's the perpetrator, turning everything into trauma, that if you feel uncomfortable, you must be traumatized when maybe you just feel uncomfortable. So that's the part that's disturbing to me, even as I can recognize like, how much progress we've made and how many more how much more treatment there is for young people today um than there was when i was a teenager yeah yeah it's it's like that's something i could totally relate to because uh you know when i talk about this stuff or when i was working in treatment and uh you know sharing my story and everything like you know i we had health classes but it was all about like safe sex or like how to avoid yeah. like getting to like you know being becoming obese all but nothing was about mental health but now um you know because there's even that conversation when it comes up with uh uh, you know, trans young people, right? And this kind of social contagion aspect of not just that, but um, I don't know if you've heard about this, but like uh, there's 
there's like contagions of different like very very rare mental illnesses like dissociative identity disorder which is like multiple personality disorder like on tiktok right and people are like oh i have like 150 different personalities and one of the reasons i got canceled was because i explained that there's there's very little evidence about this mental illness right and people like don't, don't how dare you say that and everything like so uh, you know, I try, I, I try to bring up the conversation about cancel culture within the mental health sphere because it's become so touchy. And now it's like, if anybody says they have something, that's it. Right. But then it's also this weird thing. I don't know if you've noticed this where it's, uh, it, it might be a little bit younger than us, maybe more Gen Z, but it's like, I have a mental illness and you got to deal with it. It's not about me going and getting help and treating it. Here's what I have. Here's how you need to reorganize your life. And as a recovering addict, like when I went to 12 step programs, I was taught the exact opposite. Like, hey, you need to get your shit together so you could be a better person for your son, for your family, <laughs> everything like that. So I don't know if you've seen that aspect as well, where people are like, hey, this is what I have. You got to deal with it. I don't need to get up. Well, I think this connects to our conversation about personal branding because this is where the piece where it becomes part of your identity. Yeah. And it's something you put in your Twitter bio or your Instagram bio, um, your diagnosis. It's curious because I mean, like, I've also, you know, there's a whole disability rights community on on Twitter and Instagram and disability activists. I mean, they have disabilities and that's part of their identity and they're activists and they're, you know, they want more an accessible world and who could blame them? Um, it is interesting. The mental, the mental, the chronic illness, mental health community is like a subset of the disability community. I just think it's interesting because it's, it's actually something I think about a lot because, and this will connect back to self-care, but my third book was a memoir called Land of Enchantment. It came out in 2016. It was about this abusive relationship I was in in my early 20s with this very charismatic young man. And the whole idea with the book was that I wanted to explore what drew me to him and how I got into this and how was I complicit. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a, meant to be a book about poor me as, as the victim. And I actually felt so uncomfortable. I asked my publisher not to call it an abuse, like not to word, use the word abusive in the marketing copy because mm -hmm. I was so uncomfortable with it. I wanted it to be more nuanced. But that was a marketing failure because how do you describe a book about an abusive relationship without using the word abusive? So the book flopped. But that experience and the experience of having to market this book and realizing, oh, I have to go around in public and I have to identify as a domestic violence survivor. Mm -hmm. That has to become my identity. And then I can talk about what happened to me. And I just thought, I don't want to be identified as a domestic violence survivor, even if that's true, if that's part of my experience. Yeah. I didn't want that to become my identity. So I had a really hard time promoting the book. It flopped. Um, and then I created the character of Devin for self-care. So that's where Devin yeah. comes from. That's the part of me that 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 I pulled on for Devin. But I, I wouldn't want to, you know, I have compassion and sympathy for people and I don't want to take away a label from someone that's empowering to them and that, mm. you know, they're proud. Maybe they're, they're proud of their survival. I don't, I don't want to discredit that. It's just for me, I wanted to be known as a writer, right? I wanted to be known as someone who that was, that's not the only book I'm ever going to write because yeah. I, I have an imagination. I'm going to go on to write other things. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. I, I definitely relate to that on, on multiple levels. When I first started my YouTube channel, uh, you know, it was, you know, I, I talked a little bit about addiction, but like, um, I didn't want to be stuck in that box. I, I didn't want to, one of the only reasons I got sober, I remember when I got sober, uh, one of the deals I made with myself is, you know, I, I'm not going to get sober if this is going to become my whole identity, right? Because there's people in 12 step meetings where it's their entire life. And if that works for them, cool. But I just want to be a normal 
guy. And I still go to meetings. I still take care of my mental health and my sobriety and all that. But that was something I didn't want to be me. But still, if I ever get interviewed on podcasts or anything like that, and one of the books I wrote was on, you know, my addiction story, that's who I am. But like with my content, I write about everything, like everything. It's everything interests me. I like to write and, you know, share my thoughts and all that. But when it comes to relationships, like, uh, you know, um, it, it's it's interesting because like me, I, I'm very, you know, transparent about all my background and mental health stuff and experiences, but I was in a lot of abusive relationships and it's weird because guys don't talk about that as much, right? But like, that's um, like going to the, the, the part where it's like, you know, was I complicit in it? And it's hard because there's that conversation around like victim blaming. You don't want to blame yourself because the other person is obviously responsible. But something I realized through my own, you know, recovery and therapy and everything was I was drawn to a certain type of person. Right. And that's that's one thing that I, I talk about, not because it helped me, because it empowered me to know like, oh, I am making the choice to seek out and get in relationships with these people. Like there were plenty of like women who were just they had their stuff together, right? And I was like, oh, you're boring. Like, I like somebody who's a little bit crazy, <laughs> you know? Like, but that was a decision I was making. And now, like, I'm in this loving relationship. Me and my girlfriend have been together for, like, five years now. Like, the healthiest relationship I've ever been in. But I used to seek out that stuff. And, you know, through therapy and stuff, they're like, maybe it's because you had an alcoholic mom and that's what you felt comfortable with and all that. But anyways, what I'm getting at is, like, there's this, there's this weird thing that, you know, we all have to figure out on our own where, it's like, am I seeking this out? Because maybe I can avoid or figure out why I'm drawn to that type of person, you know? And for me, that was empowering. So even though the book flopped, was there something about that experience writing this book that was helpful or therapeutic to you, like getting that down on paper and sharing your experience? You know, yeah, there's often often this idea that writing a memoir is very therapeutic. And I and I I push back a little bit against that because I feel like therapy, like when I'm going to therapy, therapy is so self-involved. You know, it's just like me in a room crying about the same things every week. But a book, writing a book, if you want to publish a book, and maybe this can be our segue to talking about the publishing industry, yeah. but like you have to think about the reader. So you have to think about what's the experience that you're giving to the reader. It's not only about how did I process this thing that happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, I do I do have this weird experience where now that I've written I was, I was, with all my books, I'm driven by an obsession. I write mm -hmm. the book because I'm totally obsessed with the topic. And if I start a book and I'm not obsessed with it, I can't write, I can't finish the book. I've abandoned projects because I don't have an obsession. Yeah. But I was obsessed to write this memoir. The other thing I should mention is the impetus for the memoir is that six weeks after I saw this ex-boyfriend for the last time, he died in a motorcycle accident. Oh, wow. So that kind of forced me to reckon with the whole thing. Um, and he had also stabbed someone in a gas station parking lot right before he died. I think he was having a manic episode. So just this confluence of death and violence and me looking back at our relationship. How did I end up with this person? How was I able to leave this person? So it did force a reckoning to write the book. I felt obsessed with telling the story. Um, and I felt obsessed with like getting it right like to show both the highs and the lows so I could mm. capture that quality of one of those relationships because it looks so bad to others from the outside. But when you're in it, there are some dramatic highs and then there are some dramatic yeah. lows. Just like it, it was an addiction. My relationship to him was my addiction. And I think other people that have been through addiction recognize that that high and the low mm -hmm. cycle.
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, my whole life was, you know, it wasn't just substances, but I, I couldn't be single. Right. When I got sober, I, that was the longest I ever stayed single because they say don't date your first year. And I stayed single for a year and a half, but my entire life, I could never be alone. Right. I yeah. needed someone there to, you know, help me feel, oh, I'm worth it. I'm okay. Someone's into me. So, you know, whatever, but, but like you said, that is a perfect segue into the publishing industry because you, you help out you coach, you teach, you, hold classes for writers and stuff. And something I wanted to ask you, I asked this of Megan last time she was on here as well, but how the hell do people, how, how do you even sell yourself like as writing a memoir? And let me give you my little rant about this. Something <laughs> I've learned, something I've learned from uh, getting sober is everybody thinks that their story is unique and special. Like it doesn't matter who it is. No, you don't understand my experience, but something I realized, it's like, we're all the same. This is the same candy, different wrapper, right? And something else I realized about the publishing industry too, like you walk into a bookstore, for example, let's, let's use the political section, for example, right? There's like 50 books on Donald Trump and they all say the same shit, right? And, and you look somewhere else and then there's like a hundred books on Facebook and how social media is bad for you. And I'm like, there's no difference here. So in the world of memoirs, how do you write a memoir that stands out isn't the same, right? It's a unique experience and, and all that, because I have trouble like reading a book where I'm like, I've read this before. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, I mean, you're right. Like everyone has been through something incredibly unique in their mm. lives. Um, but we all have been through something incredibly unique. So there is like a sameness to that. Yeah. Um, but I think people that have been through something truly extraordinary, all their friends and family go, you should write a book about this. So that's where they get the right. idea, right? So also people think writing a memoir will be easy because they know the story, right? Mm. They don't have to make it up like a novel. They don't have to invent. They already know the story. So what memoirists usually run into in terms of trouble is they don't know how to structure it. So even though the story happened doesn't necessarily mean you should tell it in chronological order. Like it probably doesn't start with the day mm. you were born. Yeah. Um, I say like an autobiography is usually written by a famous person and it's their whole life. Like Hillary Clinton could write her autobiography or Michelle Obama autobiography. Like we want to know, like, what was Michelle Obama like at age six? Like, that's interesting because she's a celebrity. A memoir is an interesting slice of a normal person's life. Mm. So my memoir was about this relationship I was in from the time I was 23 to 26 or whatever it was. Right. It's not about my childhood. It's not about where I grew up. It's about this specific relationship. Um, so that's one thing is to realize what the slice of life is you're writing and then to look to other memoirs as comps. When I was writing my memoir, I read 50 other memoirs. So you what? have to read you have to read everything else that's out there in order to be able to say what how you're going to do it differently. Whoa. How you're going to do it the same but also differently. This is the paradox of book publishing. You have to say my book is like this other book that everyone already loves, but here's the twist. So yeah. you have to say, mine is Eat, Pray, Love, but, you know, <laughs> it's written by a man. Or mine is, there's a real book by Rahawa Hale coming out that's, that's like wild, but it's by a black woman and she hiked the Appalachian Trail. That's ah, the twist, right? So her yeah. book was sold as Wild Meets Citizen by Claudia Rankin. So that's the key to writing memoir. The other thing with writing memoir is, you have to be willing to be hard on yourself. I think a lot of people come to memoir because they want to write about how their husband was such a shithead in the divorce, you know, yeah. or how their mom was the worst mom in the world and they just want to punish the person mm -hmm. that wronged them. They're like, you won't believe 
what how my husband cheated on me. That's the book they yeah. want to write. But we believe a narrator when we know they're being as hard on themselves as they are on the other characters. So it really takes looking at your Ooh. own self. And I'm sure this is some of the work that you do in um, 12-step programs too, yeah. is, is really being able to look at yourself in an unflattering light. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know, your memoir is like one of the next books on my list because I, I'm a nonfiction reader and we'll talk about why I don't read fiction in a second. But I will say this, like you, you just hit the nail on the head. My favorite books are when a writer is critical of themselves or they question themselves and they ask like maybe maybe i'm wrong about this right because we live in this world of this like certainty and i'm right that's it like we know everything but when someone like questions themselves in certain aspects or even like i read a lot of books from like academics and stuff like that and if a book just is like completely just one direction here's my theory here's why i'm right here's all the studies that back it up i'm like well, that's dumb. Like, what are the best arguments against you? But a book that like presents those arguments, I'm like, there we go. Like, it yeah. strengthens it, and it and it, sh like, you know, with a memoir, a personal story, or you know, I love I love personal essay books, which I didn't think I would like, but it it gets you inside their head of like, oh, maybe I did something, or maybe not, or maybe I was perceiving it wrong. And I think that's a little bit more real. But anyways, I like nonfiction. Because yeah, <laughs> another thing we talk about a lot in memoir writing is like this idea of a dual perspective or a double narrator. So there's two narrators. There's mm. the you that lived it when it happened. So there's like 23-year-old me and how she saw this moment. And then there's 29-year-old me writing the book, looking back at her uh. saying, I thought this in the moment, but now I realize it was that. So that hindsight um, is a critical part. Yeah. I remember reading, you know, and some memoirs, some people, it's like trendy to write in present tense, you know, like, you know, uh, instead of past tense. So that people write lately, like, you know, like I'm on the, I'm on the zoom with Chris, I'm looking at his face, I'm talking <laughs> into the microphone. It's a sense that it's really happening right now instead of reflective. And sometimes it's really hard to read that. I remember I read a memoir written in the present tense about incest and I couldn't finish it because it was just like this child being abused and there was oh, no older yeah. voice reflecting and saying, you know, and this is how I made it out. And I couldn't take it. I didn't want to be inside the child's perspective. I couldn't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is, yeah, that is interesting. But yeah, especially because, you know, reflecting back, it shows that kind of growth and everything. And, yes. And, and when you did like, there's, there's a, there's a big difference between experiencing something and then looking back on it because it's, it's so much different. You know what I mean? And by the way, by the way, Lee, I, I have to tell you this in case you think I'm just like some lunatic. My cat has been jumping all over. I have a brand new desk <laughs> and she is just like, what can I do? And she had all morning to do it, but now she's doing it. As we're I'm talking. enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen her tail go across the yeah, camera. Yeah, I've, I've but... seen like a fluff pass by the screen. <laughs> so I'm like, I just now I'm like, okay, you're done. Um, but, but yeah, so help, help me understand where you're love of fiction comes from or maybe what you could do to sell me okay because here i'll i'll tell you why i'll tell you why i'm not a huge fan of fiction because i'm like like i i have movies i have tvs like i'm i'm like marvel star wars i watch stuff with my kid and we're all up in that and then like for reading it seems like like this is like my education here's my learning and you know like where i can understand the world and human behavior and and all these other things so i'm like why am i gonna read a, a fiction book about like fake stuff but but what's <laughs> crazy is you give me the backstory of your story leading into self-care 
then I'm like all sorts of interested. You know what I mean? So maybe I need that yeah. with fiction. I don't know. So. Well, I have a, I have a new theory that I'm going to try out on your podcast for the first time. Let's but it's, do it. I feel like my Twitter, I feel like I follow two groups of people. One group of people is like you and they're like big into podcasts and they're big into nonfiction. And they feel like their frustration with the general public is like, why don't people know their facts? Why aren't they researching the psychology of this stuff? Why aren't they critical thinkers? Why do you know me so well? Then <laughs> I follow a group of, li then I follow the literary community. So by that, I mean people with creative writing, MFAs, poets, novelists. I follow them on Twitter, a lot of those people. These people are like, it's life or death. You have to read fiction because it's the only thing that will teach you empathy. Yeah. They're obsessed with empathy and they're obsessed with this idea of like using literature as like a portal into someone else's experience. Um, so that's their argument for it. But I feel like these people are just screaming at each other and they read totally different things. Like they want totally different things. You want something out of a reading experience that maybe someone in the other bubble doesn't want from their reading experience. They, maybe they feel like they have enough facts. They read the New York Times all day that when they want to read a book, they want to escape, right? They don't yeah. want to read a psychologist's understanding of the political divide. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is it is kind of interesting too, because if I'm going to, you know, yell at my group of people you follow, like, what blows my mind is the people who do read books like me and they're still, they still act like they don't understand anything about people. <laughs> I'm like, how the hell did you just read all these books? Like, I see what books they're reading. I'm like, okay, cool. But then I see them go off on these Twitter rants and screaming at people and stuff. Like I've literally like read authors who write about like political polarization. And then they just like spend half their day talking crap about the other side all day. I'm like, what, what, <laughs> like you wrote a book right. and now you're doing this. So, so it's, it's really weird. There's hypocrites on both. There's hypocrites on both sides. I mean, I like reading fiction. I think one of the reasons people like reading fiction is that they're, you know, a lot of us are very passive. You know, we're just at home, especially during the pandemic. We're at home. We're scrolling. We're not really like we're not really like actors in a crusade. We're not like making a difference. But if we read novels, we read about characters making these life altering choices and these life altering decisions and going after something they want. And we want to get on board that train and follow them. Mm. The reason I write fiction is because I feel safe doing it and I feel like I can say what I really think in a way that I might not tweet or write a nonfiction article, but I might put it in a novel or put it in a poem. So poetry and fiction to me are like a like an invisibility cloak mm. that, that give, gives me permission to write. Yeah, no, I, I'll, I'll say this, like, you know, since I, I I learned about your work and started following you and everything, like, uh, I could see like what you put into self-care and all the topics you hit on, but that's not like your brand, right? Like you're not having all these hot takes on all the topics you covered just within self-care alone. Um, so like that, that totally makes sense. So, so when it comes to books, one of the things that uh, you actually wrote a newsletter about, by the way, everybody needs to subscribe to your newsletter if you write or anything like that. But you mentioned this on Twitter and then you wrote a newsletter about this, uh, about people reading books or backlisted books. I don't know the proper phrase for it, but uh, yeah. So these are like older books and you, you talk about that a little bit. And I'm curious, like your thoughts and why, why are people not reading as many new books as old books? Or do you think like the data might be skewed or, or what's up with that? Yeah, so this is based on like some this data that came out from um, this thing called BookScan, which just tracks books sold at bookstores. It tracks like most of the book sales in America. Um, 
And the good news is like book sales are up like for 2021. They're up over 2020. They're up over 2019. So people are buying more and more books. This is good news for someone like me. However, um, 68% of those book sales in 2021 were backlist, meaning books that were a year or more old. And what this means to me is not that um, it's not that like all older books are more interesting than newer books. It means that people want to buy books they're already familiar with rather than new books. So when I say backlist, that selling backlist would be like The Hunger Games, Harry Potter, Where the Crawdads Sing. These are books that made it big and they continue to sell. Mm -hmm. um, because I have quote unquote backlist. I have older books, but no one bought them. So they're out of print. So they don't like it. You can buy them used, but like I'm not seeing any money from those sales. So the backlist and this is you used an What did you say? The Matthew effect on Twitter? Oh, yeah, the Matthew effect. What what gets big gets bigger. What's small stays it's, small. It's yeah. exactly that. It's exactly that. So like the books that hit the New York Times bestseller list that become sensations like Gone Girl, that's going to continue to sell for years. Mm -hmm. So if you're an author with a new book that comes out, you have a very small window to launch that book and to make it a hit. It's either going to hit or it's going to flop immediately. And that's it. Very few books are ever resurrected. We always hear there are like... There are like miracle stories like Braiding Sweetgrass, which is a Native American um, plant book. It hit the New York Times bestseller list like years after it came out. This is a very rare unicorn of a book. Mm -hmm. But in most cases, if your book doesn't hit the bestseller list week one, it will never hit the bestseller list and it will fade away into obscurity. And so I know it sounds very jaded, but I think the, the lesson that aspiring writers can learn from this is just how vital the launch is that you only get one mm -hmm. opportunity to launch a book. You don't get a second opportunity to launch the book. It's this, it's the same as any product, right? If I'm launching a new lipstick, I get one chance to launch the new lipstick. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, yeah, with all the, all of the books I read, there's, there's only been a couple that I think like were resurrected, right? Where they came out with like a second edition, like uh, a second edition. We were talking about addiction, but the second edition where yeah, yeah. it like, it like blew up a few years later, like just all of a sudden the buzz started happening almost like a movie where like, you know, it's, it flopped in theaters and then all of a sudden like gave this like following and that, that aspects of it's, uh, of it's interesting, but like, because I, you know, I, I enjoy marketing, even though like I dislike marketing and branding or like the branding aspect mainly as much as you and like the criticisms of it. But something that you talk about with, uh, you know, like your newsletter and the classes you teach and all that is how important this promotion is. And man, as somebody who interviews authors, like I have, I've had like a hundred, over 130 episodes in the last, since I started in May, and I am blown away at how many authors have zero social media presence, right? I'll tell you something that I have never told anybody. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll do it right here. I get so many like publicists, publishers, you know, whoever reach out to me and say, Hey, you might be curious about this book. First thing I do is check and see if they have a following. Right. And so many of them have no, no presence like on social media at all. I'm like, like, help me understand, right? Like, I, I, I have plenty of authors on here who don't have big followings, but if you're not even present, I'm like, why, why am I going to spend my time promoting you when you don't promote yourself and you're not going to promote this episode? So, you know what I mean? It seems like very one directional, right? So yeah. do you, do you have any theories as to like, do authors just not know that, you know, the landscape has changed with social media? 
and and like uh, I, I get that they just like you know they specialize in writing right but yeah yeah but do you know why why they're not doing it as much as they should or some people aren't doing it as much as they should yeah so i should say like you know, after my memoir flopped in 2016, I took, I learned a lesson from that. And for my mm. next book, I hired a marketing consultant and I learned a lot about marketing and I think it changed my career. And I think, um, I've been thinking about this question. I don't know if I have an answer yet, but I've been thinking about the question, is it easier to teach authors marketing or is it easier to teach marketers how to write beautiful books? I don't know that I have the answer, but, um, <laughs> I think authors can can and should learn marketing. And I think the problem that you describe is based on the author's perception that that's their publisher's job. Yeah. So they think my book will come out and my publisher will tweet about it. But how many books have you bought because you saw like Penguin Random House tweet about it? I've never bought a book because Penguin Random House tweeted about right. it. I've bought a book because my friend tweets and it's their book and I want to support my friend. Mm. Again, it's the parasocial relationship thing. So the word platform can be a real turnoff to writers I know. But if instead of platform, you think network, like I'm on Twitter with my network, I'm talking to my network, I'm making friends on Twitter, I'm engaging with people. Those are the people that are going to buy my book. Yeah, It's not the people that follow the Penguin Random House Twitter account. Yeah. And I, I, I think you were the perfect person to go on my little rant about people reaching out to me and they have no presence because you, you, you sent out a newsletter, what was it a week or two ago where you talk about networking, right? Because, or like blurbs, right? Like people request blurbs from you and you talk about the importance of building relationships. Like if some random person just says, Hey, can you write a blurb? And it's like, no, you got to build relationships and stuff, especially because like, you know, uh, we, we've evolved for like reciprocity, right? Like we help each other out and that's, that's part of it. But yeah, also if I see, you know, there's a lot of like really cool authors. Like I always make it a point when I like meet a cool author, I'm like, Hey, this person's like not, not just a great writer, but they're a good person to read their stuff, you know, because I think it's important. Like when people are putting in the work, they're also like kind and like they care, you know, and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, like a lot of people, what I've, what I've realized is like they they also don't like promote other authors it's just have you noticed like their brand is just their brand and nobody else but it doesn't seem like there's any consequences for it really but but like but you, it's have, a turn off you can tell i mean it's like i think for you you're you're like an elder millennial like i am 30 i'm 36 yeah yeah i'm 37 so it's like we came of age online and I feel like we kind mm. of intuited how it works. Like I, I feel very comfortable online. Like social media is not a stretch for me. I'm very comfortable. I've been making friends online since I was 13. So yeah, I just intuitively understand that you just act toward people online the way you would act toward people in real life. Mm -hmm. But I think for an older generation, they really struggle some, not all, some people really struggle with being on social media and they feel like there are these tricks and hacks they need to learn like which hashtags to use. And again, it's like people becoming corporations. It just becomes so robotic and inhuman and they're never mm -hmm. engaging with other people. They're just like blasting their own stuff, which would be like going to a cocktail party and just pulling out your megaphone and talking about yourself to the whole room. You know, it's yeah. like you wouldn't do that in person. Why would you do that online? But yeah. so it's just fascinating to me as like an observer of human behavior to see how people act on the internet where I'm like, you know, why, is, why does this have to be so unnatural? Yeah, no. Oh, oh, man. You, you, yes, yes. Just so much. Yes. Like, for example, uh, you know, like I, I get it. Like, and you make 
total sense because I, I grew up on the internet too. I'm, uh, even though I can have these conversations, like I'm pretty introverted. I don't go out. Like that's one of, another one of the reasons I drink and use drugs. I made a, little, made a little bit more social. So I grew up online, but yeah, it's interesting to me. Like, uh, it's, it's not super common, but I'll have like podcast guests, right? Well, like post or tweet or tag them in the episode. They don't share it. They don't do it. You know, they don't do anything or, you know, uh, or, or like, it's just, it's just weird because it does seem intuitive, right? Like someone's doing something for you, but, uh, cause I try to figure this out as somebody who like during day job time, like I'll work in marketing and I try to understand how that doesn't, that doesn't click, right? Like if you're a friend who even has like a thousand followers, which is quote unquote small, right? If they share it to a thousand people, like you'd think that'd be like awesome. Like if I was in front of a room of a thousand people and I said, hey, check out this person's book, like you'd be like, ah, right? So why does, it, <laughs> why does that transfer over to the internet? It feels like just take real life and just put it there. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, the other thing that's so frustrating that we're up against is like the algorithm, right? And oh, Twitter, man. I don't know if you think Twitter's been weird lately. I think Twitter's been so weird lately. I've been noticing more and more people retweet themselves. And I'm like, mm. why are you retweeting yourselves? And then I realize like it's because they aren't getting the engagement that should be proportionate to their their that's, following. That's why I do it sometimes. I'm like, oh, right. Anybody see but this, this <laughs> it's been happening more and more. I've I've observed it happening more and yeah. more. So I mean, I don't know if this is just the failing Twitter. I'm not. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Donald Trump here with the failing New York Times, the failing Twitter. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's what it is. I don't know if people are less online. Are they Are they burned out on social media? Are they? Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you see for? What do you see for media? Because I feel like we hit peak podcast. We hit peak newsletter. Like, mm -hmm. do you think there's something that's going to come next? Or do you think podcasting and newsletters are going to be like the dominant, like content distribution methods for so, writers and creatives? Like for me, it, it's, it's all really, really weird. And I've, uh, you know, on my sub stack, I've ranted about this you know, a few times, but, um, Brianna Joy Taylor, the host of the bad faith podcast. Yeah. She like, you know, uh, tweeted out something yesterday about the abundance of content or, you know, whatever. And something I've been ranting about is so much of it's the same. Right. Yeah. And, uh, just as somebody, you know, who I'm a psychology nerd, like we, I, I just, I feel like we love confirmation bias. So people are looking for opinions and stuff and content that agree with what they already think. People don't really want their opinions challenged and stuff. But when it comes to like actual content and like, you know, as far as podcasts, like me, I was never a podcast listener. When I started this podcast, like the amount of weekly podcasts I listened to was like, just didn't get right. And even now, almost a year into it, I'm just now getting into podcasts because listening to podcasts takes away from me listening to books, you know? But right, I'm, starting right. to, I'm starting to enjoy the conversation between two people. I'm hearing somebody talk about that topic but i think there's something that needs to change for content to even kind of follow it something needs to change with like us you know because right now uh there's a few things like right now it's really hard and you probably see this with others too it's really hard for an unknown to break through anywhere right and that's one of the reasons i get frustrated without with seeing people not sharing each other's content and stuff because you you're getting all of the same and uh, I wrote something about this the other day where you don't know what you don't know, right? Right. There are, there's opinions and viewpoints that we have no clue about because they can't break through. If you look at the podcast landscape and the guests that come on, it's all people who are on other podcasts and other pieces of content. Yeah. So we're not getting anything new. And I just wonder, what is it with us 
where we don't mind, right? Because you mentioned earlier, like we want something we're familiar with. Yeah, this but, is the backlist thing again. Yeah. yeah, it's like I want a fantasy novel like that other fantasy novel that I already yeah. like. But at what point are you like, this is like boring. Like I'm tired of hearing the same people talk about the same things over and over. I I, I hear it all the time, like where I know what they're going to say. I'll skip through the podcast. I'm like, you're about to go on the same rant I've heard you say a billion times. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I, I've reached like a podcast fatigue place. Like I listened to a lot at, early in the pandemic, like I was taking these daily walks and I was listening to the same shows. And now I feel like there are shows I haven't listened to in weeks because it just it got repetitive. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the solution is for it. Because again, there's the Matthew effect, right? Because you have people who succeeded, they broke through, you know, whatever. And then they have the same people on. So they continue to get bigger, they get more publicity, they're on more podcasts. And because they're on more podcasts, they get more publicity. Same thing with uh, people who they bring on to interview on like CNN or just different TV shows. Totally. Absolutely. It's the same kind of uh, just circle. And it's it's really weird to me because me, I think about up and coming creators and stuff because one good thing about social media is it's kind of leveled the playing field, but kind of not at the same time, if that makes sense. Because it's so yep. noisy, That's it's hard right. to break through. So there's this like kind of like idea, you know, especially with like American capitalism, anybody can do it. Anybody can become this like, you know, and you've seen people like uh, musicians, right? They were like a SoundCloud rapper and now they're just boom. But, right. We hear the stories of the unicorns. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know why or what what we do to get past. What do you teach authors with breaking through like all the noise and everything? Because how many how many books in that genre are released a year? How do they stand out? How are they different? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, this I mean, this dovetails right with my frustration with writers who are who are reluctant to get on social media. They're reluctant to do that self-promotion stuff. It's not even self-promotion. They're just reluctant to get online. And it's very curious to me because I think, don't you want to be a writer because you want to share your ideas with the world? Like, isn't that why you want to be a writer? Because you have something to say. Go say it. Like, it's never been easier to spread your message because you can just start. There are no barriers. There aren't barriers there the way there were 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right. It's also harder than ever because there's so many people spreading their ideas simultaneously, right? So it's hard yeah. to capture attention. It's not hard to start talking. Um, so I'm a book coach and I really work with writers who are in the stages of like drafting their books or drafting their book proposals. So I don't specialize in the launch, even though I kind of talk about it in my newsletter. And mm -hmm. I talk a lot about my own experience launching books. Um, but I work a lot on book nonfiction book proposals are kind of a specialty of mine. And if you want to write a nonfiction book, you have to be able to answer three questions. Why you? Why are you the best person to write this book? Mm -hmm. Why couldn't Lee Stein write this book for you? Why now? Why do we need this book now? Not 10 years ago, but why do we need this story today? What is it saying about the world today? And so what? Which means what does the reader get? Mm -hmm. If they read your book, are they going to cry? Are they going to laugh out loud? Are they going to change their mind about something? Are they going to vote for a Democrat? Are they going to like what what's in it for them? And yeah. so I think if I try to help writers shift their mindset from thinking, what will publishing a book get me? How will my life change when my book comes out and my my life will be so different to how will publishing this book change a reader's life? Mm -hmm. Because the fact of the matter is like, when I publish my next book, like when I publish a book, it's like exciting for a day. 
and then I get to write another book. Like yeah. <laughs> that's what I win is like getting to be in the arena and getting to do it all over again. It doesn't really change my life. I don't make most of my income from writing, even though it's how I identify. I make most of my income as a coach and teacher. Mm -hmm. And I've I'm really happy that I found this this place where I can earn money working on books, which is what I love. But I, I haven't yet written the book that has changed my life. Maybe one day I will write the book that will change my life. But uh, my goal is to write books that change readers' lives. Yeah. And, you know, that that's a perfect segue into this question, since I have a, a, a book writing coach on here, especially uh, with nonfiction. So me, I have self-published five books, right? And uh, I'm, I'm working on, I'm working on my next one. And like, I have been asking a lot of people this, like a ton of people, a lot of authors who come on, I'll like email them and ask them too. So I'm going to ask you, like, what are your thoughts on self-publishing versus traditional publishing now that we're in 2022? And here's my thing. Here's, here's where I'm held up, right? Like I could just write something, put it on Amazon, like right now it'll be up in a few hours. <laughs> That's it. And I get such a headache even thinking about finding an agent and selling myself to an agent, right? Then going through the whole book proposal process and then selling it, you know, to a publisher, like all that seems like a nightmare, like all this additional work because writing a book is a lot of work too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like, uh, I know a lot of, uh, authors who self-publish and they're making, you know, uh, six figures a year, like just doing their thing. And I know that, you know, they're, that's not the average, but it's a lot less hassle to just do your thing, do your own marketing, especially because, you know, like you mentioned, book publishers aren't taking over all your marketing, doing all the publicity and everything. I had another guest on, we were talking about like Billie Eilish's book didn't sell as many copies as I thought it would, even though she is like one of the biggest things in the world. You know what I mean? So yep. what are your thoughts or do you have authors ask you about, should I self-publish this or, you know, uh, what are the benefits of a publisher or what are your thoughts on that whole Ordeal. Because I come from the literary world, I think I still have a certain snobbishness around traditional publishing. Mm -hmm. I am curious to see what the future will bring because you're absolutely right that more and more of the marketing and publicity burden is falling on authors. And so if if as an author, your goal is to make as much money as you can, you might make more self-publishing your book than publishing it with a traditional publisher. I mean, you have to make that calculation. I still think traditional publishing brings the prestige. Yeah. So it just is a question of what do you want this book to be a tool for you to do? Ooh. Because the stamp of Penguin Books on my book means something to certain people about the book, yeah. you know? Um, so for me, I'm not there yet that I would shift to traditional publishing. I think there are interesting case studies you could look at. There are some, I can't remember the guy's name. He's a mystery writer or thriller writer. He has some kind of deal with Amazon Publishing where he gets a much higher royalty rate and he has left Big Five Publishing to work mm -hmm. with Amazon. Um, not self-publishing, but Amazon imprint or something. Um, so there are people like breaking the rules and doing their own thing. There are also outliers like Michael Lewis, who's a huge best-selling author. He doesn't take an advance. He doesn't mm. want any money up front. Um, instead, I think he gets a higher royalty rate on the copy sold. But of course, he's in the position to do that. Yeah, like, I, was about I, to say, like, I want he's... my advance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to watch. But of course, I know someone who like bought a house in Indiana because she self-published a gay romance novel. Yeah. And it sold so many copies. Right. So there are people making much more money than me self-publishing their books. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm staying with the 
the the legacy publishing um uh, i'm taking a risk um so i think i think time will tell but a self publishing may become may become even more appealing the other thing i've noticed that's interesting is i'm a member of the authors guild mm. which is like a union for writers i mean the the bar to to entry is pretty low it's like very low membership dues and they have like classes you can take but what i've noticed is when I ever go, I go to meetings or classes, it seems like their audience is self-published writers more hmm. than the legacy published writers, even though the board of directors are all these big name heavy hitter literary authors that I've heard of. But I, I do feel like in, I can watch I can watch the shift happening in real time. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, too, because kind of like what we're talking about, how you have to do your own marketing and promotion. Like when you do self-publishing, you have to do all of it. Like you have to figure out how to make a cover like like I like I think I downplay like working with a traditional publisher because you know I I you know I edit all my own YouTube videos I edit all my podcasts I write and I you know part of uh, my job like I work in like content marketing too so I edit you know all these things so like I'm kind of like I do all these things but when you say that to a writer they're like oh my god like take some take your percentage and I don't have to deal with and figure out all this other stuff but I do get what you mean too because when I'm you know, uh, trying to like balance the pros and cons of it. Like just, I, I guess like a bucket list thing is like work with a publisher, right? Like get yeah. that kind of stamp of approval. Like some people who have like a lot of experience, they, they, they thought this was all right. So that's kind of where I lean towards, like, maybe I'll give it a try at least once. And if it flops and I always can fall back on the self-publishing, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I know so many writers who, you know, they have this project they've been working on for years. They've tried to get an agent they would never self-publish. Like they really want, they. it's exactly what you said, it's a stamp of approval. They really want the validation from the industry more than they want to get the book out there. Yeah. And that's, that's their choice. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, it's just seen, it's it's looked down upon in literary circles to self-publish. Yeah, yeah. And there's all of these things like just everywhere. Like when I talk to academics, like some academic circles are like, oh, you're writing this for a general audience. You know what I mean? And not <laughs> other academics. But uh, one of my last questions, something that you get on in the backlist uh, uh, newsletter and as you're talking about it, and you mentioned it a second ago, was uh, more people are buying books. But I'm curious because I clicked the link and it was like, but are more people reading books? Are they just buying them or are they reading them? And I don't know if you know people like this, but I know people with just like these gigantic bookshelves and stuff like that. And they don't read a damn one. Like they're like just addicted to buying books. I don't know if it's so people come over and they're like, ooh, you're a reader, right? Because I'm an audiobook listener. You come to my house, you don't know I read shit, right? But I, <laughs> I read like 380 books last year, you know? So like, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you think uh, a lot of people are reading or if they're not, or why are they buying them and not reading them? Like, what do you I think I looked books? this up the other day, like 25% of Americans didn't read one book last year. So there's a quarter of the population is not reading at all. Um, I think the link that I put in that newsletter, I think it like it was like the average person read 12 books last year. Does that sound right? Hmm. I don't know. Everybody but I people know. People are buying books. One. They're reading less. Um, but I found my own attention span has gotten worse during the pandemic. Oh. I read 26 books last year. I think that would surprise people because this is my career. But it's like I read manuscripts all day long. And then Ooh. in my free time, I read books when I can, but um, I'm not a fast reader. That's another thing. I think some people are really fast readers, and that's why they read such a high volume of books. Um, I'm a slow reader. Um, I don't think we should, like, shame people. <laughs> I, I don't think we should shame people for buying books. I don't think we should shame people for reading books. I was disappointed to see a piece in Gawker today that was, like, 
rating all these celebrity women with book clubs and asking whether these women actually read. It was extremely sexist. I was like, are we going back to like the 1950s where it's like, let's just talk about like, like their bodies and not their brains. Like, yeah, I think Reese Witherspoon reads books. Like, let's assume she reads books. Let's start from that assumption that like she does know how to read. Is is that like, is that ridiculous? So that kind of stuff depresses me. Like we need more people reading. Um, and this kind of shaming or competitive, how much are you reading? I, yeah. I just don't think it's it's helpful. And and this is like, this is what I do as a coach. It's like, I want to help writers describe their books in such an enticing way that someone else is like, oh my God, I have to read that book. Where can I buy a copy? Yeah. That's exciting to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can relate. I'm a slow reader. That's why I do audiobooks. I, I, I listen to audiobooks at two, two X speed too. So maybe oh, I was going to ask if you yeah. listen to them at a high speed. Oh, that yeah. doesn't drive you crazy. I, well, when somebody first suggested that, I'm like, you're insane. Right. But now if anything's at like normal speed, it sounds like they're on volume or something. Like <laughs> they may hit them a tranquilizer. So even podcasts and everything, it has to be two X. Sometimes if my girlfriend and I were watching like like watching a podcast like from youtube or something i'm like can i at least do one and a half speed you know so she's kind of getting used to it but uh but yeah even with the shaming too like since i'm an audio listener that whole thing like oh well that's not technically reading i'm like yeah that's bullshit that's reading yeah Yeah, it's bullshit i'm I'm like i'm still consuming the information but i i absolutely agree if people read one book or whatever like some people like oh you read so much and i'm just addicted to curiosity too like whenever i get in like i like you i get obsessed so if there's a topic i'm like i want to understand this and i'll just read like five or ten books on it and see what everybody's saying see the different opinions and all these other things you know what i mean The the literary equivalent of that is when you discover an author and you're like, oh, my God, I'm in love and they have more books I can read. It's like the best feeling. And then you get to talk to other people and they're like, oh, my God, you started there. Oh, my God, you have so much to look forward to. I love that. Yeah. yeah, Like, I want positive conversations about books. Like, it just makes me happy. That's why I do this. Yeah, what drives me nuts is when I, when someone writes a book and I just love it. I'm like, this is one of the best books I've ever read. And they have no other books. I'm like, you're killing me, you know? But uh, yeah. Well, that's when you should send them a fan letter. Like I, you know, this goes back to my, the blurb conversation, but it's like, you can make someone's day by sending them a little fan note that does not ask them for a favor. Right. You just tell them, I loved your book. That's it. That's it. Yeah, I, I try to make that a point when I enjoy books and everything. And I think I think that's one of the reasons I've been able to get so many authors on here because I actually enjoy their books. So when I reach out, I'm like, hey, got a pretty cool book. But well, Lee, I've, I've kept you here so long. This is one of my longer episodes, but you're just absolutely wonderful. So uh, yeah, you have your new book out, right? What is coming up next and where can people find that book? Okay, so you can find me at my website and my name is spelled L-E-I-G-H-S-T-E-I-N. Dot com. You can find me on Twitter where I'm addicted. My handle is at rhymes with B. And uh, my two recent books are self-care and what to miss when. And I just started writing my next novel, but I'm very early in the process. Yeah. So that'll be my next book. Hopefully knock on wood. You have any other nonfiction books planned like later down the line? You're going <laughs> to write a book for authors? I would love that. Oh, interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe someday, maybe someday, but I'm on the I'm on the fiction kick for now. I think because self-care did so well, it feels Ooh. like it feels like the book that should come next should be another novel. Awesome. Well, I will be on the lookout and maybe maybe you'll help help me grow in my fiction reading. So, so I'll be able to look <laughs> I'll be sending it. you uh, recommendations. Beautiful. So yeah, Lee, thanks so much for your time. And yeah, maybe we'll do this again. Thanks, Chris.
All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lee. I know I did. I had a blast. We were only going to do an hour. And like at an hour, I was like, yo, Lee, you got some time. Like I could, I could talk with you <laughs> a lot longer. And yeah, she's such a blast to chat with. So I hope, I hope you all, you know, uh, gained a lot from that. I hope you're interested in her books too. But, but yeah, like I, I hope you enjoyed kind of, you know, uh, learning a little bit more about, you know, publishing and marketing. Like if you're a writer and if you're, if you're an author out there, uh, don't feel bad. Okay. <laughs> These are some pet peeves that I have about marketing and stuff, but, but like, uh, Lee and I discussed and I chatted with, uh, Jane Friedman about this as well. A lot of writers, you know, they write, that is their thing. That's their jam. Right. So you're not supposed to be a master at marketing and everything like that. But, but remember too, like these books, they're your baby. They are your baby, right? And and you work on this, you put so much effort in it, like you want to get it out there, you know? And make sure you you check out, uh, you know, Lee over on Twitter, sign up for a newsletter and stuff like that. Because there's a lot of like little hacks that you could do. Because uh, a lot of people just, you know, they're under the impression, and this is for anybody out there listening to this who's entrepreneurial in any way, shape, or form. I think there's a big misconception that like marketing and all this stuff, like it takes a ton of work, a ton of effort. It is very minimal once you get down like a few like key strategies. So make sure you're following Lee and sign up for her newsletter. She puts out so many tips and wisdom and all that stuff. But yeah, she also does like one-on-one -on -one coaching and everything. So if you're interested in that, check that out. But yeah, Head down to the description below. I've linked uh, Lee over on Twitter as well as some of her books. Uh, yeah, but yeah, self-care, phenomenal book. I am going to be checking out uh, her memoir. And yeah, I might I might check out her upcoming novel, the, the poetry one. I might check it out, but I would feel bad because I'm not a poetry guy. But hey, I wasn't a nonfiction guy and I've ended up really enjoying some nonfiction. I mean, fiction. I'm not a fiction guy, but I've been enjoying some fiction lately. But yeah, make sure you follow the Ground Suburb Books, all right? But before I let you go, again, don't forget, make sure you follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any updates. If you want to, uh, head over to the Rewired Soul YouTube channel. I've been trying to upload uh, more episodes because I record a lot of these with video. So uh, subscribe to The Rewired Soul over on YouTube. Um, and yeah, uh, a couple easy free ways that you can help support the podcast. One of them, share this episode. Like, hey, maybe you're a writer. You're in a writer's group on Facebook. Be like, hey, this was a decent conversation. Boom. Share it over in that Facebook group or, or anywhere. If you like any of these conversations, sharing these episodes really, really helps out a ton. And the second thing that helps out a lot that doesn't cost you anything is take two or three seconds out of your day, go leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. All right. The algorithms love that stuff. But some other ways you can support the podcast, like I said, some people are listening to this episode a day early. That's because they are a paid subscriber over on Substack, $5 a month or $50 for a year. Uh, and yeah, it helps support what I'm doing. But you can also head over to TheRewiredSoul.com. I have self-published some books on mental health, addiction recovery, uh, my experience being canceled and some of the toxic things going on on social media. And lastly, uh, yeah, Lee and I, we, we talked about, you know, mental health and all that kind of stuff. Mental health is a huge, huge part of my life. And there's a link down below. It's an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. So if you're interested in affordable online therapy with a licensed therapist, uh, yeah, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp. All right. But anyways, uh, another huge, huge thanks to Lee for taking the time to come on. And I definitely want to do this again sometime. Make sure you follow her and grab one, two, or three of her books. All right. And I should, well, I definitely 1000% will 
have another episode for you this week. Uh, I have a bunch of episodes banked up, so I'm trying to get out, you know, two episodes a week lately. So yeah, another one's coming uh, out this week. Uh, I'm not sure which one I'm going to release, so I'm not going to tell you who the guest is, but I have a lot of really good episodes banked up. But yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. There's another awesome episode coming for you this week. But until then, have an amazing rest of your day, and I'll see you next time.